Okay, friends, turn to Matthew chapter 1. As threatened, as promised, I mean, we are starting the book of Matthew today in our study. Um, and it's an amazing, amazing, intimidating thing for me, for, uh, for me as, a, as a Bible teacher, and I think you're, you're going to see why today. Let me pray, and then we'll um, get started. Lord, uh, we approach your word with fear and trembling today. I want so desperately to represent this accurately and rightly and with the power that it was written in. Would you please uh, bring these truths to our hearts and our minds today and as we go through this series in the Gospel of Matthew? Help us understand Matthew. Help us understand where he, um, what he wanted us to understand, the reasons that he wrote it. Lord, because all of those things surely apply to us today. We, please, God, I pray for our church as we go through this series at the outset. I pray, God, that you would um, bring us close to you. Lord, for some of us here who have fallen asleep or lethargic in our walks with you, may you call us to be awake. May we feel and sense that excitement to grow and come after you again. God, would you give our, you, this is your church, you know what we need. Would you give us the diet that we need, the pace that we need, Lord, to flourish in you, to be your healthy flock, so to speak. And would you please give me the mind and the brain to be able to guide us through this and the rest of the preaching team, God, that you would give us strength to guide us through. Lord, we also wanna pray for the Middle East right now that is just in absolute turmoil and chaos and at war. I ask for your protection for those who are innocent on both sides, Lord, people are being hurt and perishing. I pray for protection. I pray for peace. But Lord, honestly, I think you're the only one that can bring peace to that region. You are the Prince of Peace. So Lord, we say come. Come. Come, Lord, to our world. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on this planet as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. You ready for this? 17 verses, I promise. Only 17, but they are, they are um, dense. Here we go. Stick with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zara by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab was the father of Nashon. And Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. How are we doing so far? You with me? Okay, take a deep breath. We're gonna plunge in again. Here we go. <gasps> And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Okay. Okay, no one's, okay, we're all here. Okay, okay, here we go. Here we go, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, 
and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Anyone, if anyone's, you know, looking for a good name to give to one of your kids, you may want to consider that one, Zerubbabel. I'm a school teacher too, I can, you know, taking role. And Zerubbabel is here, okay. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of, of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Iliud, and Iliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who was called the Mashiach, or the Christ. So... All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation were 14 generations, and from the deportation uh, to Babylon to the Christ were 14 generations. You guys got it? Okay. This gospel is intimidating to me as a Bible teacher because it is so brilliant and so articulately, articulately structured so intentionally artistic and creative and, and patterned, so many patterns going through. And not just for the sake of being brilliant, but Matthew is trying to emphasize, even overemphasize, the most important things he believes we need to know about Jesus. This is a, his biography of Jesus, Jesus the Christ. Matthew is very keen that you and I grasp certain qualities about the life of Jesus, and he gets at it in some very creative ways. So, in very non-Western ways. So we're gonna need to transport back in time, and I'm hoping to guide you through, and then we'll come back over and we'll apply it to our time, okay? And that makes this book intimidating to me, because as I guide you through, I don't wanna feel Matthew turning over in his grave, so to speak, going, no, Mike, that's not what I meant, or oh, you missed this one part that I really took pains to emphasize, oh, I don't want that to happen, so I'm gonna do my best. First of all, in order to get into this, we have to ask ourselves the question, who is Matthew? Because his writing and his material will make sense in light of that question. And one way to answer that is to simply say that he is Levi, the tax collector turned disciple of Jesus from chapter nine. We'll be introduced to him in chapter nine. And that is a good starting point. But let me go a little further at that question. Let me get at it another way and show you what I believe and others believe is probably the key verse in this book to understand how Matthew both sees himself, how he sees himself, and what he thinks he's called to do, or his purpose of writing this book. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to chapter 13, verse 52. This is a key passage in us understanding Matthew. If you don't have it, it's okay. I will write it to you, or you can use your phone. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure from what is new and what is old. I'm gonna read it to you again and then I'm gonna pick it apart and explain it for you. Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. So Jesus is saying here, every scribe, a scribe in Jesus' day was an expert in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, what Hebrew folk call the Tanakh. That's what we would call the entire Old Testament. They were basically like an, a lawyer, an expert in the law. So he says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. So now Jesus is not referring to the typical scribes of his day, but he's referring to his own kind of alternate scribal school. The kingdom of heaven was his phrase. So scribes that I've trained specifically for the kingdom of heaven that I'm here, that I'm saying is at hand, is here now, those scribes will be like a wealthy homeowner who will go down into, this, into the, his mansion, his vault, and bring out old treasures and new treasures. Not old in terms of obsolete that don't matter anymore, but old as in maybe ones that you're familiar with. Maybe truths from the Old Testament that you know, that you recognize. But also, 
new ones as well. And how they both, particularly, how the new actually enhances or brings to the full value that of the old. How they both go together, okay? Most Matthean scholars, that would be like Patrick Schreiner, Allison and Davies, um, uh, F.B. France, those guys think that this is a nod in the scripture that Matthew is saying, this is me. This is what I've been called to do. This is why I've written this book. He's a trained scribe. Matthew is saying, I'm one of these trained scribes, trained by Jesus, and this book is to bring out the old treasures and the new treasures of the kingdom of heaven and show you how the new fulfill the old. Matthew was a Jewish kid growing up in Israel, so he, like all children, were educated in the local synagogue in Bet Sefer, that is house of the book. So we know that he at least had the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized by the time he was 12 years old. Think of that. That was general requirement for every kid growing up in Israel. The first of the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized. And this was the bare minimum, but others went on to Bet Talmud, which is, uh, which is house of, what is it? House of learning where they would go on to memorize the entire Tanakh by the time they were 14. So they memorized the entire Old Testament by the time they were 14 years old. We don't know if Matthew went there. He might have. He certainly, when you get into this work, you might know that he, you might, you're gonna quickly get the impression that he's definitely smart enough to do that. But on top of that, Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans, which means he also would have been educated by Rome's educational standards as well. He would have been trained and gone through their educational system. And more than any of that, Matthew was in this inner circle of Jesus in his discipleship program, this alternative scribal school, or like a three-year master's degree intensive with Jesus himself so that he could learn to do just this, to bring out the old and new treasures of the kingdom and to show them to you. So think of Matthew as this wealthy homeowner that's eager, like you're a guest at his house, and he's saying, come in, I've got some things to show you. You wanna see my treasures? You wanna see my stuff? And he goes down and he starts bringing up stuff that is old stuff that you might say, oh wow, that's cool, I've heard of that. But then, have you heard of this? And he lays them side by side and you go, your mind is just blown. He does that over and over again. The reason Matthew 13, 52 is tipped off many scholars to be applied to Matthew is because the material in this gospel fits that rubric throughout the whole time. Throughout the time, there's this pattern of old and new coming together. This comes across mainly through Matthew's use of the, of the Greek word pleiro, which is the word fulfill. He uses it 16 times throughout this book. And it's his way of saying that Jesus is the new, that pleiro or pleureo fulfills all the old. Jesus is the new that fulfills the old. In other words, in Matthew's mind, he looks back toward the old through the grid of the person of Jesus. It's like an alternate ending to a movie. He looks back at the Old Testament now with Jesus and everyone's going, oh, so that's what that means. Oh, that's the full significance of that that story that we've heard since we were kids. Oh, that's what's going on. Matthew's gonna do this over and over again. In fact, several times he will be telling a narrative or maybe uh, recording a discourse of Jesus and it's almost like he pauses and turns to his audience and says, this was done to fulfill this or this was done to fulfill this scripture. He does that often. He's letting you know. All that to say that Matthew is particularly interested in telling you that Jesus is the new treasure that brings to the, fulfill, to the fullest value the old treasure that you might already be familiar with. Jesus, filled, the old stories are filled up and brought to their climax in Jesus Christ. In fact, you get this from the very first verse. Let me show you. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the first 17 verses in Matthew are verses that our Western eyes tend to skip over pretty quickly. Wouldn't you say that's fair? Let's just be honest. 
We don't find much nutritional value in a genealogy here in the West. But if you were a first century Jewish man or woman living in Palestine under Roman rule, the first 17 verses, even the first line, would have, you would have been able to hear a pin drop. You would have been riveted. You would have been on the edge of your seat, especially the first line. Biblos Geneseas Isu Christo Huiu David Huiu Abraham. That's what they would have heard. And the first word you might, well, you might think, well, that's just Greek. Yes, but the first word you might know, Biblos. Where do you guys recognize that word? Bible. In the Greek, it just means book. It doesn't mean Bible in the same way that we think of it. It means book. And the second word you might realize also, and it's really interesting, it's not the typical word that anyone would use for the word genealogy. It's the word geneseos or genesis. Do you guys recognize that word? Genesis or beginning. Very interesting, not the typical word. This would have riveted Jewish hearers in Matthew's day. So we actually have here, when we just stop there, he's saying this is the book of the beginning or this is the book of the new beginning. And this alone would have arrested your attention if you were a Jewish person in the first century because if you were reading the Torah, chances are you were reading the Torah in the Greek, or the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew work, the uh, Torah, was in wide circulation at that time. And when you would have read Genesis chapter one, you would have said, you would have heard in the Geneseos, you would have read that. In the Genesis, if you would have gotten to chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 1, you would read this exact same line, Biblos Geneseos. Matthew is saying this is the new beginning. You see it? The new of the old from the very beginning. He's playing off of Genesis from the very beginning. You would have been riveted immediately. If you would have heard this first line, the book of the beginning, you would have like, talked to your neighbor. Okay, oh, I know what he's doing here. He's referring to Genesis. He's saying this is the new Genesis in Jesus Christ. Matthew is basically saying in Jesus, God is making things new. He's recreating the world in Jesus this is the book of the recreation brought through Jesus. And then notice how upfront he is of who he thinks Jesus is from the very beginning. First, there's three titles here. First, he's the Christ. That is the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. That is a prophesied figure right on the horizons in the future that would come and make all wrongs right. This leader from the line of David, he's also the son of David. That was a requirement for the, for the Messiah, that he would be a descendant from the king of David that would retake Israel's throne and would lead the world into peace. We're still needing that today, are we not? We're looking for someone that will come, especially if you're a Bible nerd, you know that the, what's going on in the Middle East right now will forever be stopped when the son of David... Huyo Dawid comes again and takes the throne in Jerusalem and leads the world into peace. Isaiah talks about how, uh, you know, weapons of war will be used for, you know, they'll beat their swords into plowshares. They'll use those things to bring crops and prosperity instead of to tear down and break apart. Can you imagine? Nobody has nuclear weapons anymore. No one needs them anymore. Can you imagine? A, can, can you even imagine a world like that? I want you to know how high a view the Bible has of, of mankind. <laughs> it, has, it casts a vision for mankind of peace, flourishing, unity, prosperity, goodness, abundance, all of those things when this son of David comes. So he's the son of David. In other words, he is the climax of the story of the Messiah, this prophesied figure. He's also the climax of this idea of the son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that there would be someone from his line that would always sit on the, on the throne. Solomon, pass or fail? Fail. What about all the other of David's sons, more or less, pass or fail? Did they live up to this line of bringing universal peace and prosperity? No. In fact, dismal failures except for, I think, two or three. I mean, horrible, horrible failures. 
the old story of David ends on a downer in the Old Testament. It's not like in the Old Testament, the story of, of humanity in the Old Testament gradually builds up and then Jesus is here. It's more like promise, fail, promise, fail, pick up the ball and recover, fail. And at the end of the Old Testament, it's just a dismal fail. They're deported to, the, to Babylon. They're stuck. They're not even in their land anymore. They're stuck there. Finally, a few of them are allowed to go back. But they, even there, they're oppressed by other governments. They're under the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, now the Romans. Even though they're in their own country, they still, it's not theirs. They're oppressed. They're still exiled. Matthew, can you, and that's where Matthew's audience is. Even though they're in their own land, they still feel as if they're exiles in their own home. And Matthew comes out and says, he's here. The one that will bring peace is here. And he's the son of Abraham. Matthew is asserting that Jesus is the climax of the entire story of the nation of Israel. Also, a dismal fail at the end of the book. He's saying, no, we're picking it up again. Jesus is, the whole story of Israel is filled up. Remember, Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you so that you will bless the world. You remember that? I'm going to bless you, not just because I like you and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so you'll distribute my blessing to every family on the earth. That was the glory and promise of Israel. Pass or fail? You can say it. Fail. Yeah, absolute fail. Right now, our Israel, right this very moment, is Israel bringing peace onto the planet? No, no. There's a conflict right this very second. Matthew, see how bold this is. Matthew comes and says, Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. He's the one. <laughs> you would have been riveted. You would have been riveted. You would have been on the edge of your seat. Not bad for an opening line to a book. This is the book of the new creation through Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The story of mankind itself is being completely rewritten through Jesus. That's what he's saying. If you were a Jewish person, your jaw would be open. You could hear a pin drop at this moment. Now, what proceeds is an actual genealogy, but in many levels, let me just tell you, if you, if you put the work in and the time, you realize this is not an ordinary genealogy. It's been souped up. It's been intentionally supercharged and tweaked to emphasize and scream certain things to us about who Jesus is, okay? First of all, what is a genealogy and why does it even matter? I, have, I feel like I have to answer that question here in the West, here in the, in the late modern world, because we find zero value in this altogether. But um, I was actually listening to this uh, interesting YouTube uh, talk by Andy Crouch, who's one of my favorite authors, and he was commenting that the, that the modern world has traded um, personhood for power. It was really a compelling talk. He talked about the financial revolution in the 14th century when Medici created the bank. Wealth used to be centered in land, right, in what you owned, uh, how many sheep you had, how, many, how much stuff you had. That was considered how wealthy you are. You see that in the book of Job, you know, Job, it tells you how wealthy he is by outlining how much sheep and oxen and servants and all this kind of stuff he had. All of that wealth was transferred to the bank, to a holding place. Sec the second major revolution, the Industrial Revolution, it traded um, bodies for work, human body or animal bodies for work, to engines, arguably the start of the, of the steam engine. Um, it, so now we create work by through machines and those types of things. And finally, he talked about the computation um, revolution, which is where you know, information used to be given from de uh, you know, father and mother to their children. It used to be verbal. You know, we used to go to each other and talk. For Now we say, we say, oh, I don't know the answer. To like Noble asked us the other day, how long is the Great Wall of China? Siri, how long is the Great? You know, that's how we figured it out, right? And his argument was, it's made, it's made our modern world the way it is. On the one hand, extremely prosperous, extremely wealthy, 
and extremely helpful. We've made such advancements in our day and age. It was, um, you know, some of you here work for Boeing. We were driving here, and we see this huge, like, building of an airplane, like, hovering, floating, slowly into SeaTac. And it's just a marvel. It's almost, a, you know, a fatality, you know, because you're, whoa, you know. And Nicole says, keep your eyes on the road. But it's, it's just a marvel that we have done things like that, that we know how to do things like that. The medical advancements that we've had, the technological advancements that we have are stunning, staggering. So it's incredible. But on the other hand, those very same revolutions have made us so much less personal. How many, how, many of you, how many of you in here know what my mom's name is? What? How many of you in here know what my mother's name is? Except Nicole. Isn't that something? How about my father? Tells you the cultural moment that we're at. Isn't that something else? You don't know um, that my mom's name is Jerry, that my father's name is Peter. You don't know that my grandparents' names are Florence and another Peter because they're Italian and they named the oldest kid the same name as the dad. That my mom's name is Jerry, that her mom's name is Florence. You don't know those things because we don't find it actually that important. In fact, in our world, success is even measured by how impersonal we can be. Back in, the, back in the ancient times, people had to vouch for your character to do business with them. In other words, you had to know people. Now, you know, we walk into a store and it's successful that we don't need to know the person. You know, we go in there, we barely say hello. We don't, it, we're, if you say hello, you're, you're on the nicer side of humanity at this point. You go in there, you put your item across the thing, you swipe your card and you leave. You don't know a thing about that person. They don't know a thing about you. It's efficient, it's fast. It's also insanely impersonal, right? Well, in the ancient world, to collective cultures, even cultures to this day, where you come from, what your parentage is, means everything about you. Everything. It actually outlines who you are and where you're projected to go. It's extremely important. You are the son of someone. You are the daughter of someone. And who that someone is and was matters. Because we can vouch for you. We know you. It's, it literally held society together. Um, here's one historian says this. For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly from someone in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums. It was a fanfare of trumpets or like a town crier calling for attention. That's what this was to, if you were reading this in the first century. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession down a city street, we watch figures at the front and the ones in the middle. But all eyes are waiting for the one who comes at the position of the greatest honor right at the end. That's the idea here. The whole thing is a climax and crescendo to Jesus the Messiah. You would have found this impressive and compelling on a certain level. And on one level, it is just that. It is a typical genealogy. An ancient, it meets all the requirements of an ancient, typical genealogy. Basically meant to show you where Jesus came from. That, you could consider that old treasure. You knew that. We know that, Right? But as we've already discussed, the story of Israel is a failed story. And as I said, Matthew has taken liberties in this genealogy to scream some things at us about Jesus, and this should illustrate why I'm so intimidated by Matthew. Let me, let me just quickly go through some things that he's done here. I'm going to geek out for a second, but I think you'll find it compelling. First, Matthew's genealogy is enhanced to proclaim that Jesus is the climax of the entire human story. How do I know that? Well, first of all, well, because there's women in the genealogy. This was a patriarchal society, and it was very, very uncommon to have women in your genealogy. It was about who your dad was. So, it, and especially in a genealogy as important as this one, this is a royal genealogy with a very big claim at the end of it that the person at the end is the Messiah. 
Normally, you wouldn't put, a, put women's names in this, but it's not just odd that Matthew included women. It's extremely odd which women he decided to include because you have none of the matriarchs of what you would consider Israel in here. There's no mention of Sarah. There's no mention of Rebecca. There's no mention of Leah or Rachel. Instead, he picks, intentionally, he puts in there most, if not all, all non-Israelite women with very shady, complex pasts. Let me just go through, first, let me just go through them with you. First, we've got Tamar. This is that weird story from Genesis 38. It's one of those weird stories that we would like to just like go, let's get past that. That's, you know, I need to go take a shower after that story. Let's, okay, got through it. Now we never need to go through it again. But Matthew's like, no, let's think about that one again. Let's bring that one back up, shall we? Tamar was a Canaanite woman who married Judah, one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, married Judah's son, Ur. Ur was a wicked man. He passed away. Custom was that then his widowed wife would go to the next son in line. He passed away because he was a dirtbag. And the, the custom was to go to the next son, but he was too young. And Judah was supposed to take care of her because in that day, like I said, patriarchal society, if a woman was left destitute without a family, she was done for. There was no one to look after her. She was on her own and in a very tough, you know, social position. And basically, Judah brushed her off. He sent her packing and said, well, you know, someday type of a thing. And she was destitute in the midst. So she, being a des- in a desperate position, she dressed herself up like a prostitute. And back then, prostitutes had full veils. You couldn't see their face. And she seduced her father-in-law. He was grieving from the loss of his wife. She played on that grief, dressed herself up like a prostitute. He paid her for sex and she ended up being pregnant and having Perez, who is in Jesus' family tree. Okay. Historian John Bloom says, Tamar is the sort of ancestor most of us would not want to mention in recounting our family stories. You know, we'd bring out, the, you know, I'm related to George Washington somewhere. I've heard that I'm related to this person. We wouldn't want to bring this one up. Next, we have Rahab. Rahab was also a Canaanite who was a sex worker in the city of Jericho. Okay? She helped the Israelites. You might remember the story. The spies came in to spy the land. She hid them away, told everybody that they weren't there, lied about them so that they wouldn't get caught. And remember that part of Israel's mission was to go into this promised land and judge the nations that are practicing these horrible practices So Rahab is the last person that you would expect that would help the Israelite spies because she is deeply entrenched in the kind of culture that they're coming to punish, that they're coming to bring God's judgment on. She herself is deeply entrenched in this wicked sexual culture. But Joshua chapter six, verse 25 says, but Rahab the prostitute and her family's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua spared her, and she became part of the line of the Messiah. Next, we have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite uh, widow who left her own land to follow her widowed Jewish mother-in-law back to Israel. She was a cursed people without family, without protection, She adopted Naomi, her mother-in-law's people, also her mother-in-law's God. And Naomi, uh, everything that she had was due to handouts from other people, including her, who who would become her husband, Boaz, who took care of her. And they ended up, and they got married and had a kid and became part of Jesus's family line. And then we have Bathsheba. We don't really know if Bathsheba was um, Israelite or not, but we certainly know that her husband Uriah was not. He's called a Hittite in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter, chapters 11 and 12. And you know the story of Bathsheba. It's a shady one. David used his power to take her from her husband 
and have an adulterous affair with her, and then he had her husband murdered. So here's the point. Matthew is trying to, here's what, what would Matthew be trying to say? He's saying, Jesus fills up the human story. This is a genealogy, not just men, but women also. Not just Israelites, but Gentiles also. Not just holy, religious, squeaky clean people, but people with dirty, mixed, complex, hard pasts. That's what he's saying. Jesus has galvanized himself to the human story and become from the human story. Do you have a family tree? You may not know it. Well, now you do. And Jesus is in it. That's what this means for you. This is your story. More on that in a second. Secondly, okay, here's where it gets crazy. Matthew has intentionally omitted names or changed names here. Now, to our Western ears, this seems shocking even scandalous, falsifying of, of, of you know, documents and all those things, but I assure you, actually, it's quite normal in the ancient world. This was a normal practice and was not considered taboo at all. Writers would include or exclude people, and sometimes they would exclude or include entire generations, all depending on the message they were trying to bring across through this genealogy. They were trying to get certain aspects across. And in verse 7 and verse 11, there are two significant tweaks to some names here. In verse 7, Matthew has changed one Greek letter to change the name of the person who should have come after Abijah. The guy that should have come after Abijah was Asa, a very good king, but Matthew changed it to Asaph. You might even have a footnote in your Bible uh, if you have a new, uh, an NIV version. There's a footnote that will tell you this. Chronologically, Asa should be after Abijah, but Matthew has drawn our attention to Asaph. Anybody remember who Asaph is? He is a, one of the main writers of the Psalter, of the Psalms in the Old Testament, particularly someone who wrote poems and Psalms about the coming Messiah. Okay? Really interesting. And then in verse 11, we have something similar. Instead of the rightful chronological order of the evil man um, Ammon, a really wicked, gross, horrible king, Matthew has altered his name to point to the prophet Amos. Amos, who wrote about God's Messiah bringing justice and righteousness to the entire planet, to the whole earth. Fascinating stuff. Again, what Matthew is doing, he's taking something old and he's pointing to something new. He's, he, what he's doing would not have been controversial in his day. Lots of ancient genealogies did the same thing. It was common practice. He's saying that Jesus is the song of the Psalter. He's the song that's in every song. That's what he's saying. He's the one that we've been praying for. He's the one that we've been singing about. He's the one that we've been teaching our kids how to sing and pray about. He is the song that's in every song. And he is the one that will bring God's justice and righteousness to the earth that Amos famously preached about and prophesied about. Okay? Interested? There's more. Thirdly, perhaps more than anything else, this genealogy is engineered to show that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David. We already talked about that a little bit, but this genealogy is purposely engineered and structured to highlight that and to scream it. Matthew, do you notice at the bottom, he says there's three sets of 14. Have you ever wondered what that's all about? Matthew has given us three sets of 14, and that might be confusing to us, but any Jewish person would have known exactly what was going on there. In Jewish numerology, the number three is one of what we call the perfect numbers in, in the Jewish world. Another one is seven. This one is three. This is to emphasize completeness, fulfillment. Um, it's all done uh, like Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah sees this vision of God and the seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy. In other words, God is completely holy. He's perfectly holy. He can't be more holy than what he is right now. It's done. It's a done thing. So what, we have to ask ourselves, what is so perfect about three 14s? What's so perfect about 14? Well, in, the ancient, in ancient Hebrew, not only are there no vowels, I just want to pause there because 
I took a Hebrew class and dropped out of it when I realized that there were no vowels. In fact, it was the day before the drop-off point, and I was struggling. If you want your brain to hurt, learn Hebrew. And I was two weeks in, and the, the instructor said, by the way, there are no vowels in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And that's where my brain went, I'm going to fill out that form to switch out of, this, out of this class. Not only is that, but also every Hebrew character has a numeric value. Their alphabet is also their numbering system. And the name David, which is simply DVD in the Hebrew, it adds up to 14. So, um, and this became shorthand in Matthew's day for the Messiah. It'd be like uh, here if we said today, well, later today, if they're even playing. It'd be like if I, went to, if I texted Jameson tonight and said, man, the 12 sure showed up for that one. He would know immediately what I was, what I was talking about. He's talking, I'm talking about the 12th man in the, in the stadium today, right? Um, which is the crowd, for those of you that don't care about football. That's the crowd that shows up to CenturyLink and screams so loud that the offense can't, they make a lot of mistakes. This, in Matthew's day, the 14 was a shorthand for the Messiah. They would say things like, man, when 14 shows up, he'll make all this right. And that's what they meant. And Matthew even omits certain names in the list, at least a few, maybe more, in the list. And here's the thing, to make sure you can count that David is number 14 on the list of things. What is he saying? Matthew is saying that Jesus is the perfect David. He's come to sit on his father's throne. He is for, he's the Messiah. He's come to rule and reign. Pretty cool? There's more. There was a well-known prophecy, especially in Matthew's day, and I'll explain why, a well-known prophecy from the book of Daniel that said that the Messiah would come after 70 weeks or, or, so, or 70 units of seven. Let me just read it to you. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. It says, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, if you want to know about that, read Ezra and Nehemiah, until the anointed one, that's the word Mashiach, or the Messiah, the, uh, his ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now Daniel is saying, Something about this pattern, if, you're, if you are anywhere familiar with the Bible, you know that seven is a big number. It's a big deal. Um, the first sentence in Hebrew in the, in the Bible in Genesis is seven words long. The second, seven, uh, the second sentence is multiplied to 14, and there are seven paragraphs in the first chapter of the, uh, of the Bible in the Hebrew language. Seven's important. We, we know that we work six days and we rest on the seventh. Well, we... Used to, but that's the idea in the Bible, right? After seven years, um, there was what was declared a Sabbath year. It was an agrarian society, and you would let the land rest. You'd have a year where you wouldn't till it, work it. You would just let it, let it breathe, let it rest. That was that. Um, and every, every seven times every seven years, so 49 years, there was something ushered in called the Jubilee year, the Jubilee year. And it's this incredible uh, thing woven into, the, into ancient Israel where all slaves, would, all slaves would be set free, all land, everything that you've bought from other people, everything would go back to the original owner, including the land. Even if it was generations removed, let's say you were in poverty and you were in the margins of society and you hit a Jubilee year, your family, you, would get your land back. It's incredible, incredible thing, and it would bring this equality and socioeconomic peace, and it was this awesome thing, except for it was always done in theory. According to history, what we can tell, Israel never experienced one of these years. They would always, they were always so naughty and wicked that someone would come and take them or they wouldn't let the land rest. And by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, they, they worked on, they were, their greed, they worked the land so much that God said, I'm going to let the land rest by kicking you out of it. And they were exiled to Babylon, and that's where their exile came. So um, Daniel is trying to say in this prophecy that about a half a millennium from when the, when the decree to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it, 483 years-ish, Okay, around that time, Messiah will come and he will bring in the jubilee of all jubilees. And the reason this prophecy was so um, p 
powerful and popular in, in uh, Matthew's day because it's, it's, at this point, it's around 483 years from when Artaxerxes gave the decree that Jewish settlements could go back, settle there, and rebuild. It's around that time. So you can imagine, they're waiting for 14's going to show up any moment. He could, he, he's on the horizon. He's coming. Well, the re, uh, more than that, Matthew intentionally structures his genealogy to match this prophecy. But not by using years, he does it by using generations. Really, really interesting. Matthew's three groupings of 14 generations makes six groups of seven, which makes Jesus' birth the launch of the seventh seven. He did that, he tweaked it like that. You see what he's saying? He's saying, this is him. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one that's coming in to bring it, to usher all slaves. And they're under the boot of Rome. They need a jubilee at this point. They're, they would love a jubilee at this point where all slaves go free. And that would mean Rome gets kicked out. All land, the promised land is returned back to them. This is what they've been waiting for. And Matthew is saying right out of the gate, here he is. This is his story. The book of the, re, of, of the, the recreation. Isn't that so, okay. Fun? Fun stuff? Are you kind of glad that I nerded out on a genealogy? Finally, there's one more, and this sets us up for our time next week. One more thing. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the Son of God. Did you notice that line at the end? Did you notice the rhythm of the genealogy? So-and-so is the son of so-and-so who begat so-and-so. Son of so is the son of so-and-so. He's the father of this. He's the father of this. He's the father of this. And then you get to Joseph, and you're expecting them to say, and Joseph, who is the father of Jesus. But it doesn't say that. It says, and then there's Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see what it would have made you do if you were reading through this. You'd be like, you'd be waiting for the last guy to get there. And then Joseph is, but wait, he's not the father of, then who's the father of Jesus? Exactly. Wait, Matthew is setting us up for, our, for next week. He's gonna tell the story of Jesus' birth. Can you see why Matthew intimidates me a little bit? How he's able to accomplish all of that with one genealogy. Not just one purpose, not just two purposes, but like six purposes he's able to weave into this genealogy to make some very, very big proclamations. To use the genealogy to proclaim, that's what it's for on the surface level, is to proclaim who it is, but to beef it up like that. To say loudly, this is who you've all been waiting for. Let me give you a few concluding thoughts here. What is the point of all this? Jesus is the genesis. He's the new beginning. He's the recreation of the story. God, the, make no mistake about it, the Bible is loud and clear. God is reconciling the world back to himself through Jesus. You, you may not agree with the Bible, and that's fine. But make no mistake about it. Make no bones about it. it, is loud, it you cannot interpret this differently. It is loudly proclaiming Jesus is the one the world is waiting for. He's the one where all of our hope lies He's the one. Secondly, Jesus is the climax, the fulfillment, and the completion of the story of mankind. Like I said earlier, he's galvanizing himself to humans. The metaphysical has become physical. Think of that. The untouchable, we're going to learn next week, has become touchable. It's just incredible. It's incredible how he's bringing these, these ideas together. It's like he's pulling humanity and God into one, and that is what he's doing. Not just men, but women. Not just Israel, but Gentiles. Not just good people, but sinful people with shaded pasts and hard histories and complexities like you and me. That's my next point. Jesus is the climax. This is what this is saying of your story. You, in a lot of ways, and I, in a lot of ways, hold on, you, in a lot of ways, and I, in a lot of ways, are like this genealogy. This genealogy is just like you. It's just like me. It's a, mix, it's a mixed bag of honesty 
and deceit and lies. It's good things and bad things. It's strengths, strong people, and weaknesses, weak people. Things that are nice and neat and as they should be, and things that are mysterious and unexplained and really hard to figure out. Does it remind you of you? You are a mixture of good and bad, good intentions and survival mode, fear, all of those things. This is, he's saying Jesus is the, how is Jesus bound up in you? How is your story bound up in Jesus? That's, I would love you home groups this week to answer that question. How does Jesus fulfill your story? How are you bound up in the story of Jesus? And because of this, Matthew believes that the more we learn about Jesus, and this is why I picked, uh, someone asked me yesterday or the day before, why did you pick Jesus? Because of this. Matthew believes that the more we learn about Jesus, the more we will learn about ourselves. The more you learn about you, the more he shows you Jesus, the more you learn about you. How so? The more he shows us Jesus, the more we're going to feel the tension between what we know we should be and what we are now. It's going to hurt so good. Matthew is, the more we learn about Jesus, we have a vision of who God wants us to be. It's this positive, incredible vision and a vision of who he's making us to be, who he's changing us into. That's the hope of every Christian. In Corinthians, he says that we are being transformed from glory to glory into the perfect human, into the image of Christ. Isn't that so? Do you ever look in the mirror and say, man, I wish I didn't have this going on. I wish I could get over this. There's this one habit that I still can't break. Man, I get angry at the worst times. Man, I still have this going on. Look, you will not always be that way. God is changing you. He's changing us, and he wants to do it by showing us Jesus, this vision of humanity, and he wants to do it with us together. That's why these home groups are so important, that we change into the image of God as a community together. Matthew is the scribe of the kingdom of heaven that is casting a new vision that completes our old world and that completes your old world, completes your old story even a new vision of a new you in Jesus that fulfills who you've been and who you've always known you, you want to be. Excited? Yeah, Kristen. That's right. And he's talking about... Yeah, it's great. And it's, that ties in very nicely. Nope, you didn't steal it. You added to it. Well done. Well done. Yes, Jesus is at the beginning, and he's here now to make a new beginning. What's that? You didn't wreck nothing. You are good. Thank you. Let's stand together. Let's do that. And let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would bring us into your that you would wake us up into wanting to be this again. Instead of thinking that Jesus is this far off, uh, you know, someone that we could never hope to be like, which in some ways is, of course, true. We'll never be, we'll never be God. But it, in another way, you are inviting us into communion in the Trinity. You are bringing mankind back into your Sabbath day rest again. And from that place, we will be changed. Lord, we are here to look at Jesus as you want us to see him, as you want to show him to us. Lord, help us understand how he fulfills us even now, even today, in 2023. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.